Do you ever think much, and let me say before we really get started, that it's true. Uh, my 14-year-old daughter yesterday went to Oxford. She was in the Grove at Vaught-Hemingway Stadium. And I have failed as a father. I Do you say at the Grove or in the Grove? In the Grove. So it's like quicksand. It just sucks you in and makes you, yeah. So in the Grove, and I don't think she got converted. Did she? Older I get, the more the bumps and bruises and lumps and lacerations of life hit me, or I see them hitting you, I have a longing, a craving, a desire for that perfect world. Do you think much about what a perfect world would look like? In a perfect world, all marriages would be healthy, all children would be safe, those who have too much would give to those who have too little. Israeli and Palestinian children would play on the West Bank, their parents would build homes for each other. In offices and corporate boardrooms around the country, uh, executives would scheme how to help their colleagues succeed and they would give compliments behind their back. Tabloids would be filled with stories of courage and moral beauty. Disagreements would be handled with grace and civility. Lawyers would exist perhaps, but they would have real useful jobs like delivering pizza that's low in fat and cholesterol. Fathers, there would never be a story of a father saying to a disappointed child, I'm too busy. Doors would have no locks. Cars would have no alarm. Schools would need no police presence or even hallway monitors. Teachers and students and janitors would all honor each other's work. At, At recess, every kid would be picked to play. Every time another human being touches another human being, one human being touches another, it it would be an expression of encouragement, affection, and delight. In a perfect world, different races would hold hands, emphasizing our common humanity in the way that God intends it to be in a perfect world. But you know, like I know, that we don't live in that perfect world. We live in a world far from it. In fact, if you look at what the Scripture teaches, uh, Scripture teaches us in the gospel story that when you impact a life, you touch a life or impact a life for the good, that there's much joy in heaven and a little bit of heaven comes to earth. That motivates me to look what we're going to look at these next few weeks. I was riding around in my truck this week and I started singing along with, uh, I believe, John Legend. One man can change the world. Have you heard that? One man can change the world. You heard this song? One man can change the world. Now, I don't know uh, about the song. I hear Kanye's got something to do with that song, and I'm throwing in with him for 2020 presidential election. I'm just going on record right now. No, really, for real. I, I, I don't know the, the ultimate message of that song or a lot of the lyrics. Maybe I shouldn't have quoted that or sung that in church, but I was singing that out loud, and, and I thought, I agree, one man can change the world. You know God believes that. One man, one woman can change the world. When God does a work, he calls somebody out. And there's always a team involved. He rallies people around, but he starts with a, a singular person, with, a, with an individual. When God wanted to begin a nation, 
He did with Abraham. When God wanted um, to preserve that nation, Joseph. When God wanted to call that same nation out of slavery, Moses. When he wanted them to go and to conquer the new land, Joshua. God directs kings and judges to govern people. And listen to me, church, he calls out prophets to warn us and to reprove his people. And finally, I would say that Jesus sent one man to die for the sins of the world. One man can change the world. For the next several weeks, in fact, for the month of September, I'm going to preach a few sermons and then we're going to have a panel and we're going to hear from some of you about what God is doing in our church. But I want us to look at a prophet, a specific prophet, a prophet named Micah. Now, when we think of these prophets, I don't know what you think of. What do you think of? What does come to mind when you think of a prophet? Probably some angry old guy, right? Some angry, old, ornery guy that's pointing a finger, maybe fault-finding or blame-shifting, and he just, he needs help. He's mad at people. But I think the prophets of old give us contours and dimensions of God that we wouldn't have otherwise. There are in the scripture uh, what some classify as major prophets and minor prophets. Do you know these? There's going to be a comprehensive final exam at the end of church today, so you better listen, okay? But there are major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And there are some lesser prophets uh, known as the minor prophets, um, Amos and Joel and Hosea and Obadiah and Jonah and Nahum and Micah and Zephariah. And all these Malachi, minor prophets. But listen, why the designation? Is it kind of like sports? You've got major league and minor league. If you're in major league, you make the big bucks and you get to travel well and you get to be on sports center. And in the minor leagues, you don't make much money and you play like the Biloxi Biscuits or something, Montgomery something like that, and you ride around in a ratty bus that breaks down, right? Is that, is that the difference in the prophets here? Is it major and minor like it is in sports? Let me say no, because we're going to be looking at a minor prophet. I want to say to you that it gets this designation from a Latin translation of, of, of understanding it. In other words, in, in Latin, let me say that the word minor means shorter, not less important. And in Latin, the word major uh, it means longer, not less important. You get that? So you can't look at scripture and say, well, this guy's, you know, Obadiah. I can't really read his book because he's so minor, right? But Isaiah is more major and more important. So I just wanted you to understand that as we look at this prophet Micah. Specifically, we're going to look at this, this, ch- this Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. And some of you know it. Uh, one man, when, when we introduced this, Last Sunday when Laura McAlpin closed the service and mentioned that we would be looking at this passage, this one passage over these next few weeks, uh, he sent me a picture of himself and a tattoo. Uh, I don't know what part of the body it was on. It was a close-up, but it said Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require? The verses before that say, is it, is it the sacrifice of these animals? It is, the, is it the same Levitical Hebrew system of sacrifice Or is it something different? And this prophet beginning to point to Jesus and usher in a new system of righteousness, he says, this one thing the Lord has required, you know it, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. To do justice or righteousness, to love mercy or kindness, and to walk humbly. I believe that we create more cynics, more critics, and more skeptics because we don't live this out. 
than anything else. Because when people point a finger at the church often and say hypocrite, they are too often right. And what I want to do in the month of September is is to ask us to move beyond just a few songs and a sermon, but to think about how can we as a church turn ourselves this way? How can we begin to put feet? You know, the Greeks had a saying, when our hearts are right, our feet will be swift. What can God do in your heart and mind this month, this fall, where our feet, our hearts will be right, made right, more right, and our feet will follow? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. Say this along with me. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, indivisible, under God, indivisible, with, with liberty, liberty and justice for all. What a great concept. We're not going God and country on you now, okay? But just what a great concept that someone, the, our fathers, our founding fathers framed this declaration, this document to say with liberty and justice for all. The Greeks thought so much of justice that they would erect statues in its honor, some famous Greek statues. One, some of you can picture this, right? Some of you historians, you, you can see this lady statue and she's blindfolded. Why is she blindfolded? Because there's an idea there that justice ought to be impartial, that it shouldn't, you shouldn't show special favoritism to the wealthy and the privileged. Justice, you've heard the saying, justice is blind. We get that from the Greeks. Another Greek statue has a a woman holding scales. Justice ought to be well balanced. If you're my age and older, you may think, is this some of that social gospel stuff? Where's this preacher going? Where's he trying to take this church with this justice stuff? Is justice important? How important? Some of you know that Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights era uh, gave a great speech and he quoted from the prophet, the prophet Amos the minor prophet Amos, and he said, let justice, what, roll like a river. But biblically, how important is it? Let's look at a few passages. Isaiah 117, learn to do good. Say it, church. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring what? Justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Next. Psalm 106 and verse 3, blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the words justice and righteousness are used interchangeably. There's only one word in the Greek New Testament for both. Next passage, Deuteronomy 16, 20, follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Next. Psalm 140 and verse 12, I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Justice is a call for everyone who wants to follow after God. If you want your heartbeat to beat like his, you know, the scripture tells us there's things that he loves. God loves the world, right? And I think, you know, the the psalmist says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I think God loves the the beauty that he sees. He loves the world, but he loves the people of the world. There are things the scripture says that God loves, but there are also things, church, that the scripture says God hates. And it's prophetic for us to point and look at that and to consider that, again, different contours and dimensions of the character of God and things God hates. And among them 
Injustice. At the top of the list. Injustice. What about Jesus and justice? Early in his ministry, when Jesus was uh, surrounded by religious authorities, the scripture tells us in Luke chapter 4 that he stood up and on the Sabbath in a synagogue, somebody handed him a scroll. We don't know who handed him a scroll, but somebody just handed him a scroll. And on that scroll, there was words from the prophet Isaiah. And he, quote, uh, he read from that in front of the people, bringing it to himself, making it very personal and very prophetic himself and saying, the, Lord has, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me, what? To preach the gospel to the poor, to set the prisoners free, to bring a release and sight to those who are blind, to set people who are oppressed free, to say that this is the year of the Lord's favor, to preach what the prophet had said and to say, my heart is going to be for the poor. My heart is going to be for the least, the last, the littlest, those who are marginalized, the, the dissed people, the people that are dissed, the disrespected and the disengaged and the disfranchised. That's going to be that's going to be my heart. Do you know the most famous story ever told? Would it surprise you that Jesus, the master teacher, was the one who told the most famous story ever told? It's the most popular. It's the story that's transcended the, the centuries and the nations. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And there's, it's just rich. It's just replete with meaning and there's various nuances to it and, and teaching. It's just so rich and robust. And Jesus teaches what? He uses this story and he, he, he teaches about a Samaritan, ultimately a Samaritan, who helps a Jewish person. He could not have been more forceful in showing us that politics, race, class, whatever it might be, doesn't separate us as neighbors, that we're all neighbors. Now hear me, church, this is really important. We're not all brothers and sisters in the faith. John 1, 12, and as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. But we're all neighbors and we're to love all of our neighbors. That means we, we love everybody. In Luke chapter 14, Francis Chan, let's put that up. Francis Chan says this is a, that this probably... He wonders if it's even in the word of God because it's the least practiced community thing in Christianity. Jesus, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of what? Of the just. Now keep that up there for a second. Jesus is teaching us about the heart of God, about his heart and what justice is. Now, here's, there's a contradiction I want to point out. This is not a scripture where you take it literally all the way and say, well, Jesus doesn't want you to hang out with your friends. Because do you know what Jesus did a lot in the New Testament? Some of you need to do more. You need to put down the remote control, get away from the screen, get out of your comfort and hang out with some friends. Have some friends over. Invite your pastor and his wife over. Hang out with people, right? Open up, get in a circle, get out of rows and into a circle and hang out with your friends. Jesus, Jesus did this. This is a, put that up there, this fancy three-letter word. This is, an, this is what Jesus is doing here. This is a Semitic idiomatic expression. I want you to use that at a dinner party, okay? A Semitic idiomatic expression. 
Use that to impress your friends, confound your enemies. Jesus is, is saying something, and he's taking something that's kind of extreme, a little bit of hyperbole, and he doesn't want you to take everything literally, but he wants you to see the point that he's making. You see in Luke chapter 14, later you could read that Jesus is saying that you ought to hate your mother and father. Now, how many of you think that's literal, right? I mean, this, there's just no way he literally means that, but, he, but he's using, he's, he's being provocative and he wants us through some hyperbole to say, well, what is it that you're talking about? And so it's not literal. We know in, in Mark 7, as well as the 10 commandments, other places, you're to honor, you're to love your parents. I think reasonable people get that. So Jesus is not saying, don't hang out with your friends. Don't ever have dinner with your friends. What's he trying to teach here? He's using this form to say to us, and I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and jump ahead to application in the modern day, but do you, do I spend more on entertainment and vacations and travel and toys and trinkets and gear and gadgets and things for me than I do for the poor? In Jesus' day, to understand this more fully, there was something known as the patronage system. Now, if you dine somewhere or shop somewhere, the business owner operator may say to you, thank you for your patronage. That's, that's a good thing. We got some business owners in, in the room. I, I see. thank you for your patronage. But there was a, a patronage system back in the day and it was built. Uh, and that's why Jesus was talking about this. He relates it to the banquets is that people would invite over other people who were rich or could help them. And it was about currying their favor. It was about business opportunities and political clout. It was about opening up and seeing things happen. These banquets were very large and very lavish, very expensive, but for people who were doing well, it was worth it, right? It was worth it because more money could be made, more doors could be opened. It was the patronage system. And that's why Jesus uses this example of the banquet. Hey, you're having these banquets, but think about a banquet. Think about justice this way. Think about thinking about those who are without who have needs, who aren't invited, who can't give anything to you in return. A couple of years ago, we, we joined a, a club, a country club, and we really couldn't afford it, but we thought, man, well, let's do it. I think we can squeeze it in. And then after a little time, we thought, you know, it's just not good for us right now to be a part of this club. Now, I'm all for country clubs, okay? I'm not judging anybody that's a member. Go, go forth and be a part of the country club. It's actually a racket club. And we were just kind of struggling to, to pay the bills, and we just really felt God was calling us to put that somewhere else, us personally, not some of you. I think some of you ought to be involved in these clubs, but there were a couple of folks going, hey, man, join here, and you can get to know people, and you can get to know people, and it'll help our church. It'll bless you and help your kids, and they can swim in the summer, and you can do this. But we just personally felt at this time, in this season, it might send a wrong message and it would drain us from what we wanted to give to. We decided to pull back from that personally. We wanted to be careful and I want to be the pastor in Fondren in the future to where there's not categories of rich and poor and where we're not seen as currying someone's favor or looking at giving statements and, and pastoring people accordingly. And it's important for every spiritual leader to say, I want to be as much like Christ as I can be and to spend time to be accessible and to be interruptible and to treat everybody the same. Do you struggle with that? 
I do at times. Isn't it easier? Isn't there something about the human heart that makes us prone? We have this proclivity to do things for people who can what? Do things in return for us. And that's not healthy. There's a sickness about that. And it is, it can be very, very unjust. Jesus is saying, is there margin in your schedule? Is there room in your heart? Is there a place where you're serving, where you are with people and doing things for people who can never do anything in return? Or is all your time? Look, I, I, I like business. I like some of you. I think some of you are called to business. You're called to broker the deal. You're called to sit down and do things. I'm, I'm not talking about that. But I'm just saying it's unjust. It's not righteous. It's not like Jesus when we only do things for people who can do things for us. And Jesus says that you ought to have a party and make it lavish for people who normally wouldn't have a party thrown for them. You ought to give expecting no payment in return. In fact, he takes it to another level. He says you ought to give in secret. Evidently, they got it. We all struggle with generosity, don't we? Nothing will break the back. I'm sorry, I'm sorry we struggle with greed. But nothing breaks the back of greed like generosity. Apparently, the early church got it. You know, it says in Acts chapter 6 that it was growing to the point where they needed uh, deacons and deaconesses. They, they appointed men and women to serve in the church. And you know, part of what they did in Acts chapter 6, it tells us <clears throat> that there was the daily distribution of food for people who need it. Daily distribution of food for people in need. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, we were told about Paul who's leaving um, a great church in a great city. And they had planted the church. And he had a team of men and women leading there. And he's going to, a, he's getting on the ship. He's at the dock and he's getting ready to leave. And it was very emotional. And he says to remember the poor and to live what Jesus says. It is better to give than to receive. And we see that. We see that in the early church. Are we willing to work for justice? Are we willing to care about God's heart? Are we willing to see those who are falling through the fabric of our society? And are we willing to go and to be involved in repairing and loving and looking out for those that Jesus cares for? I want to share with you, if you're a note taker, I want to give you three things as we round toward home. The first is this, it's not on the screen, but just write this down. Take it personally. Take it personally. This idea of justice, you know, we won't have a just society without just people. We certainly won't have a just society without just leaders. Do you know a part of the global problem in AIDS and poverty and education and, and sexual slavery? A lot of it is on the back of corrupt, unjust leaders. And we need good women and good men with a sense of righteousness and justice in their heart. Take it personally. I'm, I'm going to ask you today, right now, I'm asking you now to look at your own heart and say, do I speak the truth? Am I about the hype, about the exaggeration, about blowing things up, about deceiving other people, or am I pursuing justice to 
to speak the truth. No hype, no hype. Some of our sports teams, I think all the sports teams today release a hype video, right? You watch those, it's before, it's before the kickoff, before the season starts, and it's th- two to three to five minutes. And man, it just get, for real sports fans, it just gives you chills. But men like nothing more than sports set to music, right? I mean, you're like just pounding things and you know, climbing the walls. Man, my team, I, my hype video. And you're all hyped up, why? Because the season hadn't started, right? Now, are you gonna be that hyped up and Week three, five, eight, nine, 11, 13, after the bowl season. Let's say it's state fans and Ole Miss fans, Southern fans for sure. Probably not, right? You're not going to be that hyped up, but you were hyped up. And sometimes we do that. We get caught up in ourselves. We get caught up in how we want things to be, and we begin to stretch things. And we're so bendable and flexible in regard to the truth that we lack a sense of righteousness and judgment. Let me just say, thank God. There's nobody perfect, but thank God. The gospel story is true that he who knew no sin became sin on my behalf, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. The story of this sermon series, the story of our church, the story of the gospel is not go do better, nor is it try harder nor is it be nice or polite. To take it personally means you say, I have fallen, I am broken, and I wanna take all my brokenness and move it toward the wholeness that God can give me. That's what integrity is, a wholeness, where your life is integrated. Who you are in town is who you are out of town. Who you are in private is who you are in public. Who you are with this group of friends is who you are with that group of friends. That's a healthy and happier, by the way. Some of you found that to be true, right? And the reverse is true. If you're the chameleon, if you're different people, a different person to different people, and you're sidestepping and playing a game, that's a very frustrating, fatiguing way to live. Take it personally. Do you know the righteousness and justice that you have in Jesus? And are you desiring truth in the innermost parts? Take it personally. Secondly, I want to say, turn it over. Turn it over. Turn what over? Turn injustice over. Remember at the beginning of the message, I talked about the older I get, there's the bumps and bruises and lumps and lacerations, and I long for a perfect world, but we don't live in a perfect world. We live where injustices abound, and hear me, everybody in this room is affected, aren't we? Have you been? If you've been on the bad end of an ugly divorce, a job cut, a betrayal by a friend, an insult, an abusive relationship, There's something in you that says, all right, God, I'll take this. But God says when it comes to injustice in your life and mine, here's what he says, Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If we harbor bitterness, we hurt ourselves. You and I are called to consciously 
deliberately turn it over to God who will handle things fully and fairly. Is that hard to believe sometimes? You know, most of us, we don't struggle with taking revenge. You say, come on, preacher, bring it hard today. It's Labor Day weekend. Bring it hard, man. Step on their toes. I'm being honest. I think for most of us, we don't really struggle with taking revenge. But I think we struggle with thinking revenge. We did Thursday night at our country show. We did Before He Cheats by Carrie Underwood. Jessica did it. She killed it. Great, great version. Right now, he's probably slow dancing with a bleach blonde tramp, and she's probably getting frisky. Right now, he's probably buying her some fruity little drink because she can't shoot whiskey. Right now, he's probably up behind her with a pool stick showing her how to shoot a combo, and he don't know that I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive. Sing it with me, church. I carved my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights. I slashed a hole in all four time tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. Now, let's keep going. Right now, she's probably up singing some white trash version of Shania karaoke. Right now, she's probably saying, I'm drunk, and he's thinking he's gonna get lucky. Right now, he's probably dabbling on a little $3 worth of bathroom polo. Oh, but he don't know. Now, here's the thing. I saw some of you at our show Thursday night, some of you women. Y'all were singing that song now. (laughs) Somebody's done you wrong. I don't know whose bed their boots have been under, whose car's parked next door, all those other country songs, but somebody's done you wrong, right? Now let's stop laughing. We live in a world where we get hurt. It happens, doesn't it? And what God is saying there to you and I when it comes to injustice, to where it hurts us personally, is God saying to us, if somebody needs to be taken out to the spiritual woodshed, I'll do it. You don't have to. And we need to be able to trust God to do that. Take it personally. Are you walking toward justice? Do you realize that you've been justified by faith in Christ and are you walking in that light? Are you just a bunch of hype? Secondly, turn it over. Turn it over to him. Uh, If you want to go deeper today, read Psalm 73. Psalm 73, it's it's a psalm not from David or Moses or one of the others. It's a psalm from Asaph. And Asaph is saying, I see the prosperity of the wicked. Isn't that hard? Isn't it hard to see the prosperity of the wicked? Don't you want to live in a perfect world where bad guys finish last, good guys finish first? But Asaph sees the prosperity of the wicked, and man, he's just bemoaning. I mean, he's bringing some real, raw, honest prayers to God, and then he says, but Lord, you are my portion. That's what I love about the Psalms. There's just... It just, it relates to our humanity. It's real and relevant and raw because if you're going to pray to God, you're going to pray prayers like, God, why them? Why him? But as he's praying, it happens in my life some. Does it happen in you if you start honest prayer? And after a season, and maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's five hours, but you, you have to declare something. When you say it, like, kind of like singing at church, you're not quite sure you believe it. You're not sure that it's true, but you say it. And Asaph in Psalm 73 says, you're my portion. 
And then he makes an interesting phrase. I don't have it up, but it's in, toward the end of Psalm 73. He says, comfort me with your justice. Comfort me with your justice. God, you've got this. You've got this. No Louisville slugger. The Lord. The just judge. Deuteronomy 32, 4. He's the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. He's a God of truth and without iniquity. You have iniquity. I have iniquity. I'm the preacher. My sins are many. But he's the just one. He always does what is right and he'll take care of things. We can turn it over. I want to ask you to take it personally. To turn it over. And then to tackle it. And it's what this series is about. To tackle it. This week, the Lord really, through great frustration in my life, I was grappling with something, really a couple of things. And he just brought my heart here to think, you know, sometimes we, too often, we're just focused on the wrong things. And we're talking about things that are just so far from the heart of God. To tackle it. To tackle what? Remember those verses we put up? Micah 6, 8, remember Isaiah 1, 17, to tackle it, to tackle injustice, to tackle something. Here's what we're praying. We're not praying for just this season. We're not praying for just this sermon series. We're not even just praying for this church. But we're praying that people would circle up and begin to have conversations. And if you're already in a community group that some of you would have conversations about injustice and things you see. And if there's anybody in the room that says, I just can't take it anymore. I've got to do something. Maybe God is calling someone else to say, we have to do something. And let's go toward that. Jeremiah 29. We quote it often because we're here in town. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You've been broken into lately? You've been walking somewhere and you're scared of somebody? You see the news and you just kind of want to cave in? The gap grows between the rich and poor. As it grows between the rich and poor, our cities are in trouble. Our nation is in trouble. And I want to say to you, God cares about the city. And I believe he cares about this city. And I believe we are called to seek its peace and prosperity. And as we do, hey, as a little byproduct, as a nice little addendum, we too can prosper as the city does. International Justice Mission. We'll give you an assignment. I read a book two weeks ago called The Locust Effect. Have you heard of this? Hey, go get it. Go get this book. The Locust Effect is written by the founder, the president of International Justice Mission. As a staff team, they gather and they start their day with one hour of prayer. Then they go do their work and they come back and they pray for another hour. They're praying that God breaks their heart for some things that are really huge that most of us just shield ourselves from. You ever do that? I don't want to see that. 
And this founder of International Justice Mission went in with the United States government. It's a ministry now, but he started with the government. He went into Rwanda and he saw things that it's just, it's just hard. I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's hard to read this book. But there are three phases he talks about. The first is education. Open your eyes. Lord, what's in the world? What is unjust? Secondly, exploration. Let, let me learn more. Let me gather some facts. Let me, let me hear more. Let me, let me explore. And then thirdly, engagement. Where God actually breaks our heart and put, puts, us, puts something in front of us and we go to it. You know, there are several in, in our church family right here. Several of us have said, this is where my heart breaks. And we've seen inklings of us going toward them and coming around them and saying, it's tough. The fatherless in this neighborhood, they don't have some stuff we have. Let's do something. These girls that don't have an after-school program, we can do it. We can do it here. These kids that don't have a loving home, we're going to pay great expense. We're going to foster them or adopt them. Our hearts are going to break for sex trafficking in Cambodia and locally. Isn't it crazy to think that church is boring for most people today? Isn't that sad? Man, that's sad. The book's not boring. And the world with all of its adventure, all of its opportunities, all of its injustices, injustices, all its darkness and depravity. Why, I wonder, are we bored? Because if this is about three songs and a sermon, then I get it. Church, let's, let's think. And let's pray. What could God be stirring up in us? Where can we do justice? How can we love mercy? And God, forgive us that we would make it about ourselves. How can we walk humbly with him? Pray with me.